Father, I thank you for the ways that you have been moving among us this morning, maybe in a greeting and a hug, Lord, in the songs that we've heard and the scriptures that have already been read today, Lord, that you've been moving, Lord, in Jaden's song today, reminding us of a new day that is coming, Lord, in the prayers of your people, Lord, we thank you that you've met us today. And we ask that you would continue to speak to us now as we look to your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is ready for Tuesday to be over? I think that all of us uh, feel a bit weary, uh, maybe a little bit dirty, certainly a lot disappointed and what we've seen over the last year. And it, it's been so long. It's been such a long, long, long campaign. I, I mean, this election has been so long that even the Cubs had enough time to win the World Series before it was over. <clears throat> but it's my intention in prayer for the next three weeks to preach some of what the Bible says about politics. And in particular, the way that we should view politics and engage politics as followers of Jesus. And so my goal for this sermon series is to basically make everyone mad at me at least once over the next three weeks, okay? If after the second week I haven't made you mad yet, please come and tell me, and I will make sure to work that in on sermon three. But there is some truth to that, that all of us as we think about the ways that we've engaged politics, as the ways that we've thought about our thoughts and emotions, the ways that we've talked with one another, engaged with one another, uh, there's much that we need to repent of. I know that I have had to say sorry to friends and to family. I've had to ask God to forgive me for some of my thoughts and actions over the last year. No doubt during the next three weeks, some of you will think that I say too much, and some of you will think that I say too little, but my hope, as always, from this pulpit is to speak to what I think the scriptures say to us, Broadway Christian Church, here at this time and in this place. And it's been a very distracting year when it comes to politics, especially for someone like me who really enjoys watching the little political process and engaging in it. It's been very distracting. And my hope is that these next three weeks will kind of help us set the reset button a little bit to help us reorient and to refocus our attention and to help us look at politics and what's happening in our world and in our government through the lens of eternity. And through the lens of this claim that we make by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this next three weeks, I'm going to call us to remember, remember three things that it's perhaps been hard to remember or that we've forgotten maybe over this last year or maybe for a very long time. The first is to remember our true country. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, to remember our true country. And each of these rememberings also implies a certain identity that we have as Christians. And so as we are called to remember our true country, I'm going to call us today to remember also that we are citizens of heaven and that we are aliens and strangers here. 
the second week, next week, is to remember our first family and to remember our identity as children of God and brothers and sisters in Christ first. Before any other family, before any other political arrangement, before any other citizenship, we are children of God and brothers and sisters in Christ first. And third is to remember our only king. And that identity comes with remembering that we are servants and disciples of Jesus first. So it's my hope that these next three weeks that these sermons will help us to remember who we are, maybe for some of us to discover who we are for the very first time, and to give us a vision for what it means for us to engage politics as men and women who remember first our true country, our first family, and our only king. I've given you some scriptures there that I would encourage you that over the next two or three weeks to read and to study and reflect on on your own. Hebrews 11 through 12, through chapter 12, verse 3. Philippians 3, 18 through 21. I think it says Philippians 4 there, but it's Philippians 3, 18 through 21. Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, Mark 10, 35 through 45, and John 18, 28 through 40. I think if you study and reflect on these on your own, uh, these are different passages that I'll be referring to uh, throughout the next few weeks. But I want to start today by telling you a little bit about my personal story that I don't think that there's very many of you that know about. Uh, I, I was born in May of 1979 in Lynchburg, Virginia, while my parents were both students at Liberty University. And now some of you immediately know the significance of that, some of you don't, but uh, the founder of Liberty University was Jerry Falwell, who was the founder of the political organization called the Moral Majority. And he founded, he founded the Moral Majority formally in the same month that I was dedicated to the Lord by him at Thomas Road Baptist Church. As my parents were a part of that church, Jerry Falwell was the one who prayed the prayer of blessing and dedication as my parents brought me forward to be dedicated to the Lord. And growing up, my, my parents, they, they weren't very highly engaged politically, but, but the views of Liberty University, that, that politics matter, that, that our government is ultimately accountable to God, that character matters in our leaders, that Christians should be engaged in the political conversation, advocating for the rights of the unborn and advocating that the laws of our country would reflect as much as possible God's laws. Those principles and ideas were just kind of a part of the air that I breathed. And I grew up interested in politics myself. I, I was that weird 13-year-old kid who regularly watched Larry King live. In college, I majored in political science. I was invited to represent my university at the Indiana State Forum on Faith and Values. And then to Washington, D.C., I was sent by our university to represent our university, a secular university, University of Southern Indiana, at the National Student Forum on Faith and Values in D.C. I've always been interested in politics. And as God has called me to be a pastor... I thought a lot about what it means for us as a church and the way that we as a church should engage the political process. Now, there's a memory that I have growing up, and 
You know, there's sometimes you, you think back on your life and there's these certain moments that kind of stick in your memory and you don't really know why. It doesn't seem like a really very significant moment. There's a particular moment for me that has stuck with me and that over time has gained more and more significance in my life. I was probably about 15 years old and one evening, I believe that we were at my grandparents' house and my dad and I were watching Larry King. And there was a prominent evangelical pastor who was on that show, and I will, he will remain nameless for the time being. And he was having a debate about some public policy, and I don't remember what the topic was at that time. I don't remember the topic. I don't remember who he was talking to. But at one point, I remember looking over to my dad and saying to him, Dad, I agree with everything this pastor is saying, but I don't like him. And my dad laughed and asked me what I meant, and I said, he seems angry, and he has a scowl on his face. Now, I, I, wouldn't, I didn't say this next thing I'm about to say at the time, and I didn't think it, but as I think back on it now, what I would say is that this man, at least in this moment, maybe he was having a bad day, maybe he had bad Mexican for lunch, I don't know, I don't know what was happening, but whatever the case was in that moment, he lacked joy and he lacked hope. And that may have been the first time that I noticed, but it certainly hasn't been the last time when I have watched my brothers and sisters in Christ say the right words in the wrong way. When I've seen my brothers and sisters in Christ standing on principle, but lacking love. Engaging non-believers with a self-righteousness, rather than being motivated by the gospel of God's grace. And as a pastor and Christian leader, my primary concern, I'm going to say that word a lot today, primary. My primary, my ultimate, my final concern is that the way, uh, my primary concern more and more is becoming less and less that my candidate wins or that every vote goes my way, but that the church would be faithful and consistent in our witness to Jesus. That is my ultimate and primary concern. It doesn't mean that I don't have other concerns as well. I do. But that is my primary concern. And I'm convinced that the evangelical church during my lifetime is that our approach to politics is more secular than it is biblical. The weight and the importance that we give to worldly politics is out of whack the way that we view the importance of worldly politics is much more consistent with what Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton says about it than what the Bible says about it. And I say to you today, it is important, but it's not as important as we've made it. And I'm concerned that we have allowed our favorite political speakers or radio hosts to shape us and form us and to disciple us in understanding what's happening rather than making sure that Jesus and Paul are the primary voices in our head, helping us to discern and filter what's happening in the world. 
And so the main scripture that we're going to be looking at today is Hebrews chapter 11. And really, Hebrews chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 3 is really the main text that I'm going to be using throughout these three weeks. But I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 11 to get us started today. Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. writer of Hebrews in this chapter, those of you who are familiar with this chapter, he gives us person after person, example after example of men and women who live by faith. This is sometimes called the Hall of Faith chapter, and we just have all these examples of men and women who lived by faith. And he comes to uh, verse 8, and he begins talking about Abraham. He says this, he says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This passage of scripture reorients our thinking about politics by doing at least two things. It reminds us that men and women of faith in the past were men and women who remembered that they belonged first, primarily to a different country than the one they lived here on earth. And second, that men and women of faith lived their lives in view of their true country. And because of that, they lived out a particular identity as aliens and strangers, admitting that in some way that they are not fully at home here. Evangelicals in America, we have lost this vision described in Hebrews 11. Bible-believing Christians through our country's history have never considered that there would be any tension between saying, I'm American and I am a Christian. For much of our country's history, the two seem to go hand in hand. Being a Christian seemed as American as apple pie, right? But during the 60s and 70s, evangelicals began to feel this tension, began to feel this 
tension. And the strategy of dealing with that tension from men like Jerry Falla was to mobilize the church to influence government. And I am grateful for the work that they did. I think that Falwell and the moral majority were right in their motivation to influence politics. And in my nine years of living in Canada, I saw the importance of the work because there was no parallel organization in Canada that did that. And so, for example, the abortion issue in Canada is not even on the radar. The battle has been lost. And Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and others made sure that that issue and others were not lost. But over time, this good thing took on too much weight. It took on too much importance. And over time, we have become very secular and very worldly in the weight that we place on the politics of this world. We have bought into a lie that says what ultimately, what primarily matters is political power. The primary way that we win in the world, the way that justice is done, the way that God does his work in the world is through political power. We get the right people in office, they make and enforce just laws, and that's the primary way that God works out his justice in the world. Now, that is a strange thing for a group of people who follow Jesus who was born in a stable. It's a strange way to think for a people who, watching Jesus being tempted in the desert, explicitly said no to grasping for political power. Who in his own ministry, over and over and over again, denied an opportunity to grasp political power. Jesus, who stood in the face of Pontius Pilate and said to him, I have an authority that you know nothing about, because my kingdom is not of this world. My power, my authority does not derive from this world. And it's a strange thing to think for a group of people who remember that we have been saved by Jesus who died a political death on a bloody Roman cross. It's a strange thing for a group of people who believe that the Bible is the authoritative word in our life, and there is not a single passage, not a one, and if you want to correct me, I'm glad to hear it, but not a one that suggests that political power is something that should be our primary priority. The earliest disciples and the followers of Jesus made no attempts to gain political power. Jesus and his disciples and the martyrs of the first 300 years of the church turned the world upside down, and they did it with no political authority. They changed the world by loving their neighbors, by proclaiming the gospel, and by being willing to suffer. And they did suffer, and they changed the world. We have become worldly in our view of politics. Our view of politics has become more secular than biblical. And this worldliness is expressed in a couple of ways. On the one hand, there is this view that politics is everything. But there is a pendulum that is also swinging that says that politics is nothing. 
And it's just as unbiblical and just as worldly as saying politics is everything. Let's talk a little bit about politics is everything. We, we see this attitude in quite a few ways, I think. I just want to give a couple of examples, just so you know what I'm talking about. Politics is everything. Every presidential ele- election is filled with apocalyptic and end-of-the-world rhetoric. This is the most important election of our generation. This is the turning point in American history. And that would be okay with me if the people saying that then listed all of the reasons why our particular historical situation was different than four years ago or eight years ago or 20 years ago. But in my short life, it seems to me that every election has particular problems and struggles and world-changing events that are possible, right? But every election we hear this, because the motivation behind this language is not truth. The motivation behind this language is fear. The point of making these statements is to paint a picture so dire, so terrible, that I can get you to do what I want you to do, and that's vote for my person. This is how these statements go. This is the most important election ever. It's a turning point in history. And if such and such gets in office, then this and this and this and this and this will happen. So vote for my candidate so those things don't happen. And oh, by the way, if you don't vote the right way, then all of those terrible things are going to happen and it's going to be your fault. You'll have to live with it. And this kind of language is true on both sides of the aisle from every group of people, but we as evangelicals are at least as bad as any other group in using this kind of rhetoric. And this rhetoric traffics in fear. It lacks grace and kindness and faith. And it suggests a politics is everything mindset, and we need to knock it off. We we live out a politics is everything attitude when we are willing to divide the church over it. I've had a couple of friends this year tell me that they have had friends who told them that they weren't Christian because of who they were voting for, which is somewhat ironic because both of my friends were voting for different people. I think we've given in so much to this polarization of politics that if someone disagrees with us and in any one part of our politics, then all of a sudden, everything about them is now held in suspicion. We have had evangelical leaders tell us this year that if people didn't vote for the Republican nominee, that they were sinning because they weren't doing what they knew what is right. That attitude has turned our politics into a politics is everything. It's turned politics in our vote into an idol and we need to knock it off. Maybe you're thinking, I don't fall into the camp of politics is everything, but just consider, as I've had to consider this past week in my own life, what in the last six months has made you the most angry? What in the past six months has actually had the potential of harming your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ? I think for some of us, The answer to that question reveals that we have a politics is everything mindset. And this politics is everything mindset leads to a great deal of anxiety. If our person doesn't win, then what? If that person wins, what are we going to do? Church, what happened to some trust in horses? 
and some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Friends, uh, especially those of you who have fought hard political battles with your time, with your prayers, with your money, with your protest. You are watching what you perceive to be a country growing darker and darker and further and further away from what you hoped it would be. And as your pastor, I want to say to you that you have every reason to lament, to bring your disappointment and your frustration and your anxiety about those things to God. What I'm often hearing is more than lament. I'm hearing the way that this country is going. I'm hearing a lack of faith and trust in God, a disappointment in God because he's not coming through on this politics thing like you think he should. In my words for you today, not my words, the Lord's words for you today are this, as you grieve and as you lament, may you hear these words from Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save, because when their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and of earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. There is a pendulum swing happening, I think, among people younger than me, mostly, that just shrugs their shoulders. Politics isn't everything, so politics is nothing. And there's a deep indifference and a deep cynicism about politics that says things like, why vote? It doesn't make any difference. All those politicians are just a bunch of crooks. None of them can be trusted anyway. So why bother at all? There's a growing, unhealthy detaching from politics that doesn't put politics in the proper place in our lives, in the proper order in our lives. It just rejects it altogether. And this politics is nothing mentality leads to apathy. A deep lack of care and concern for our country and for the injustices that we see and for the direction that it's going in. And so if this is your temptation, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week, but if this is your temptation, I want to say to you this morning that the Lord of your true country tells you that you must care for this one. The Lord of your true country tells you that you must care about this one. And the word for you today, if you fall into this mentality of politics is nothing, is from Jeremiah chapter 29. And it was written by Jeremiah to a group of exiles who uh, had been taken from their homes and dragged off to the city of Babylon. And they're there and they're saying, the leaders here don't care about us. They hate us. There's nothing we can do to have any influence here. What do we do? Do we fight? Do we revolt? Do we sit on our hands? What 
do we do? And here is what the Lord told Jeremiah to tell them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, engage and become a part of the city you are in, even if you feel like an outsider and an alien. And in the context of American democracy that we have the great privilege of living in, part of being a part of this city of this country is that engaging your process with your voice, with your vote, with your support, with your protest as God leads you to do. So politics is nothing, is not the proper response to politics is everything. There is another way, a way to live as followers of Jesus here that does not lead to anxiety or to apathy, and that is the way of Hebrews chapter 11 by remembering our true country and by remembering that we are aliens and strangers here. One Christian leader throughout this election has been reminding us that we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. That's a good one. We are Americans best when we are not Americans first. When we remember our true country, our eternal home, when we remember our primary identity, our primary identity is not as an American citizen, but as a follower of Jesus, as a citizen of heaven, as aliens and strangers here, it is then, it is then that we will be the best citizens of this country. And Hebrews 11 tells us that we have this great cloud of witnesses of men and women who have lived by faith who have lived by faith and that because of their faith, because they were longing for a better country, they left their mark on this world. They were convinced that there is a heavenly city waiting for them, a city not built by the hands of men, but a city whose builder and architect is God. And those men and women left their mark on this world because they were so focused on the one that God was preparing for them. The Apostle Paul communicates this same message as the writer of Hebrews, in a different way. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Paul writes this, Philippians 3, verse 18. As I have often told you before... And now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their shame, and their glory is in their shame. I'm sorry, the God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul describes here people whose mind is on earthly things. Their whole orientation about the world is earthbound. There's no eternal horizon. There is nothing more important than their comfort and their safety in their full bellies here. Their vision doesn't go beyond the present moment. And friends, this is our temptation in a political season like the one that we've had. To have our orientation, our thoughts, our reflections, everything that we see to interpret our, and to just shrink our imagination so that the only thing that we see is what is right in front of us. Is your mind on earthly things when it comes to this election? Is your meditation and your thoughts and reflections about this election primarily within the boundaries of what's right here and right now? If so, you have a good reason to be anxious. Why not? The two presidential candidates fan the flames of anxiety wherever they go. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it's not coincidental that Paul uses political language here. The language of citizenship. That we belong primarily to a different place. Paul says that we, as we live here, we are waiting for this king that is to come. We are waiting One of the most important discipline of citizens of heaven is a faithful patience. It means acknowledging our limitations, acknowledging the limitations of our present political politics. Our political system will never bring about God's justice. It won't. There's only a limited amount of good that we can do. And every election, as it's filled with this intense urgency, this intense anxiety. This is the most important election in the whole world. Paul says we should be waiting. Waiting with patience for the king of our true country. And because we are citizens of heaven, I want to suggest to you that we can engage in our political politics in a way that is entirely different from the way that the world engages it. Without anxiety and without apathy. We can enter into our conversations and our dialogues and our debates with people not demanding that they see it our way, not trafficking in the rhetoric of fear, but being people of rest and full of joy and full of peace because we know the king of our true country. And the anxiousness that has characterized so much of our evangelical spokespeople this past year has not reflected an understanding of our citizenship in heaven, and that we are waiting for a savior from there. Paul says we are called to wait, to live in faith and in hope. And there's this great uh, quote by C.S. Lewis, and he talks about the importance of setting our minds on heaven. He says this, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. 
If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the entire Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. And then this sentence is awesome. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. The meek will inherit the earth. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Ooh. Remembering our true country calls us to live as aliens and strangers. And for 40 years now, we have been trying to be the majority. We've been trying to make this place our home. What is more clear now than ever, that it's not, that we're not the majority. And as we're experiencing the tensions of our present reality more and more, I think we can discover, maybe for the first time, what it means to be an alien and a stranger. Friends, pluralism. Living in a country where there are various views about God or the gods and morality is not a new problem for Christians. Living in a city whose rulers and laws are contrary to God's rules and laws is not a new problem for Christians. In fact, pluralism and living in a place where laws are contrary to God's laws is the way that most Christians have lived throughout history and the way that most Christians live in the world today. And so when we begin to fret and suggest that the world is coming to an end because America has ungodly leaders, we're forgetting the fact that 99% of Christians throughout history have lived faithfully under ungodly leaders. Things have been bad for Christians throughout history for a very, very long time. There's nothing new under the sun. There is much to grieve and lament about when we consider the direction our country is taking. But it's important for us to remember that we have always been aliens and strangers here, even when it didn't feel like it. The comforts and the freedoms that we've enjoyed have often caused us to forget that. As aliens and strangers, our primary concern must be faithfulness to the king of our true country. At the end of Hebrews 11, we read about what faithfulness results in. I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry that this sermon's going a bit long. Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 38. And the writer of Hebrews begins to describe the results of faithfulness. And I want you to notice here how both worldly power and influence and worldly weakness and suffering are both results of faithfulness. Verse 32, what more shall I say? 
I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, or Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Do you hear that? That the writer of Hebrews says that there are two possible results to our faithfulness. In one way, we may gain authority and influence and to use that for Christ in the world, or we might suffer. Those are two possible results of faithfulness. Faithfulness is not measured by how much political power that we have. In the next couple weeks, I'm almost done. In the next couple weeks, we're going to talk specifically about some political issues that are in front of us. But as we finish today, I want us to consider some general ways that we should engage politics as men and women who remember our true country and who live out our identity as aliens and strangers. And the first is through prayer. Our first responsibility, our primary responsibility to government and politics is prayer. And we pray for our rulers and not against them. We pray for their good, the good of their lives and their families, and we pray that their rule will be a success, not a success in every single issue that they may suggest, but we pray that they will prosper because if they prosper, we will prosper. Second, as we seek to engage politics remembering our true true country, and remembering that we are aliens and strangers, the second thing we must do is personally reflect and repent. Our politics is characterized by passing the buck. We blame everyone else. Everyone else out there is the problem. If only they would see it. If only they would be gone It's the Democrats, it's the media, it's the the fill-in-the-blank. It's always someone else's fault. And we would do well to reflect individually and as a church on how we have contributed to the divisions in our country, to confess that to one another and to those that we talk to. Admitting we are wrong is not a weakness, it is a strength. Third, We need to encourage believers to be salt and light in every area of life. You know what, I'm going to skip that one. I'll talk about that one later. The last thing is that we need to listen and seek to dialogue with people who disagree with us. And we need to stop making our ideological opponents our mortal enemies. This is, I think, one of the most important things for us as believers We need to seek to dialogue with people who disagree with us, and we need to stop making our ideological opponents our mortal enemies. And our dialogue has to be honest and has to be lived out by the golden rule. 
Because what we so often do in our political discourse, and we are not innocent of it, is we dig up the absolute worst examples of someone or paint the worst picture for someone about their particular point of view, and we use that as an argument against them. That's not what you want other people to do to you, right? So why do we do it to other people? Why? I don't know. We constantly paint our opponents in the worst possible light while ignoring the problems of those people that we support. And if we're going to dialogue, if we're going to talk with one another, if we're going to have our voice heard in the public square, then we need our words to be honest, and we need to be ready to listen and talk with others about their best arguments and their best examples and put them up against our best arguments and our best examples. And so I encourage you, I plead with you to read and to listen to people you disagree with. We are stuck in this echo chamber in our media and in our culture. We have an opinion, and we go and we find someone that has that same opinion, and we listen to it over and over and over again. And it just entrenches us in our worldview, and it builds on itself. It's this feedback loop, and it confirms that we are the good guys, and they are the bad guys. We are the smart ones, and they are the stupid ones. Our intentions are pure, and theirs are wicked. And on and on. If we're ever going to be able to speak to others and actually dialogue with them, then we must understand them. And we can't understand them if we're not willing to listen to them. We must read the best examples and the best arguments that they give, not just pay attention to the worst possible examples which only confirm and reconfirm our suspicions. We need to get to the heart of what motivates people who disagree with us. In preparation for this sermon this week, I read Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. What a great document and example of political engagement. King spoke directly to the consciences of the people he was writing to. He wrote this letter to pastors who was opposing his work, and he never painted them in the worst possible light. He never pretended that they were worse than they actually were. In fact, he did the opposite. He put himself in their position and spoke to their conscience. He spoke to them about their gospel convictions. He listened first, and then he spoke. And that almost never happens today. Friends, we are called to a different way. We are aliens and strangers here, and so we don't have to hold on so tightly to every single one of our opinions as if we lost one of them, then everything falls. We can listen. We can be open. We can allow God to change our minds through someone who disagrees disagrees with us. So those are my four suggestions. I've got 10 others, but that's a start. We pray, we repent, we encourage and promote believers to be salt and light in every area of life, and I'll talk about that next week. And we listen and we refuse to make our political opponents our mortal enemies. We are citizens of a true and better country. We are aliens and strangers in this one, and that is good news for us. And if we live faithfully to it, it's good news for the world. 
Revelation 21 gives us an image of what it will be like when this heavenly city that we live in is joined together with our earthly city. Every frustration is going to be brought to peace. Every injustice is going to be made right. There will be no more secret emails. There will be no more race-baiting and fear-mongering. There will be no more disrespect for women. And all the nations will be gathered together. There will be no more lying or cheating or stealing. It will be a time and a place where our king and our God will be so near to us that he will wipe away every tear from our eye. We need to remember this true country that we are living for And this morning, if you don't know about this hope, in this true country, you can have the promise today that you will experience it by placing your faith and hope in our true king of our true country. He was the one who knew that power in this world was expressed best, not through ruling over people, but by serving people. He became a servant for you and for me and for the whole world by humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of his faithful service to the world, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, brother. Today, you are invited to confess him as Lord and King. And all the disappointments and failures of our present political climate should remind us that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. And it should call us to long for something better. And that longing for something better that all of us have felt, I want to say to you, is the longing for eternity that God has placed in each man's heart. Our longing for something better tells us that there is something better coming. When we see that the politics as we know it are wicked and crooked and slanted and dishonest, the fact that we know that, the fact that we know that that's not just and right tells us that there is a justness and a rightness that exists and that is real. And it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Don't forget it. May each of us live for the king of our true country. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you have revealed to us our king. You've revealed to us his way in the world. And we ask for your forgiveness for when we have not lived according to it. I ask for your forgiveness for the ways that I have not lived according to it. Father, we pray that you would make your church into the church that you are calling us to be. A church that knows and remembers our true country. A church that remembers that we are aliens and strangers here. Amen.